Dear People of Earth podcast. Today we discuss the flying saucer and UFO battle seen by fishermen in 1665 in the town of Strasland, Germany. No part of this podcast may be copied or distributed without express written consent. Thank you for listening. Uh, welcome to another edition. Uh, today we're talking a little bit differently. When I first started the website, I wanted to uh, kind of do something um, along the lines of also have some historical things. And one of the ones that really was kind of always interesting to me was one that uh, an incident that had occurred in Strassland. Um, and this was 1665. Uh, what actually occurred was um, it, there was a group of fishermen uh, that witnessed uh, something that they couldn't understand and actually called it a battle. Um, it's the first, I, I guess you could call it the the very first legitimate um, description of not only uh, the flying saucer, but also UFOs uh, that were over a small town. Um, there's an article that was written, um, and I want to make sure that I go ahead and give them plenty of uh, recognition in edge science. Um, this was in 2015. They did a really good job of going over it. Um, but there's a lot of firsthand accounts that came about. There's a lot of uh, different um, photographs, not photographs, but uh, illustrations that talk about what they spoke about and what they saw. Um, if you've never heard of it, it's a, it's a very interesting story, so to speak. Um, don't know, you know, how much of the veracity of it is actually 100% true because back then, obviously, there was nothing flying around in the air. So in order for them to have seen these things, um, it was certainly out of the norm for the period of time that this occurred. Um, the men, I believe, were also rather religious, um, as you'll see some of it as they go along and they talk about it. Um, you know, one of the incidents occurred over a church. Um, and lingered until the evening. So it was more than likely not um, any type of cloud. Um, they talk about in this article a little bit going through about lenticular clouds, um, which I'm not saying could not have been part of it. Um, but lenticular clouds don't sit in the sky for hours on end. They move. That's what clouds do. Um, you know, it didn't change from the 1600s to now uh, that clouds sit in the sky for huge long periods of time. So what I'll do is I, I want to kind of talk about the article a little bit like I have, but um, I'm going to actually just kind of go through the um, the article with you and then we'll talk about certain things um, that occurred and what I think they might have been. I'm, I'm not really, you know, 100% sure, um, but it's certainly some interesting things that occurred during that. I think one of the best parts of it were uh, when they talked about the actual, it's basically a battle in the sky. Um, and there were uh, reports of blood in the water and things of that nature. And it, it's a it's a pretty, pretty wild story. So I'll basically just start. Um, so here we go. After a while, out of the sky came a flat round form like a plate looking like the big hat of a man. Its color was that of the darkening moon, and it hovered right over the church of St. Nikolai. There it remained stationary until the evening. The fishermen, worried to death, didn't want to look further at the spectacle and buried their faces in their hands. 
On the following days, they fell sick with trembling all over, pain in the head and limbs. Many scholarly people thought a lot about that. And these were the words of Erasmus Francisi. Um, I cannot for the life of me read German, so I'm not going to try. Um, but further on, all of the citizens who observe this are reliable. Berliner, ordinary, un hostuchen, something in April 10th, 1665. So, and, and I'll cite the uh, the people that wrote this article later on as well. Um, today, providing basic details on the individuals involved in a strange event is standard journalistic practice. However, in the 17th century, Europe's celestial prodigies were treated as potentially inflammatory propaganda, which meant that printing full names and professions could put witnesses at risk. In England, the church and state investigated strange claims, as well as those responsible for publishing them which forced writers to keep certain details as vague as possible. And to compensate, more emphasis would be given to other qualities, such as an individual's moral standing or reputation in society. Another technique was to stress a witness's skepticism. Any miracle powerful enough to convert a skeptic, particularly one of high repute, would be touted as irrefutable. Um, <laughs> that's not too much different from now, is it? Uh, there's a lot of people out there that... I'll uh, give you the very, very recent article uh, or thing with Jamie Mosson about those, uh, I guess you want to call them paper mache little aliens. Um, obviously, it doesn't matter where they came from. Again, um, they speak for themselves whether or not they're real or not. Um, but it doesn't matter in that case where it comes from. But you'll see, even today, you use that type of um, classification for a story. Um, and this was really at a time when journalism was just beginning. I mean, there were, there were small little pieces and articles that would go around uh, previously, but there was no real big newspapers, even at, during that time in 1665. It wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, you had the Times or something like that. There were uh, random articles and pieces of paper that would come out. Um, but at that time, it wasn't, wasn't quite the same. Um, so as it goes on, it says these strategies hold about as much water now as they did 300 years ago. But in the 17th century, this concern for credibility was actually a step forward. Newspapers had just been invented. Oh, let's just talk about that. Based on the format of 16th century gazettes and circumstantial journalism was emerging at last. The year 1665 was an important one for science. In January, France commenced publication of its first scientific periodical, Journal de l'Escavance. This was followed in April by the first edition of the Philosophical Transactions of Royal Society in England, another sign of the evolving intellectual. And that was excerpted from Return to Magonia by Chris Albeck and Martin Shaw, with the foreword by Jacques Vallée, to be published by Anomalist Books in 2015. Around the same time, on April 8th, something strange happened that seemed to mark the transition from superstitious alarmism to serious investigation. Fishermen near the Baltic city of Stralsund, in what is now Mecklenburg-Western-Pomerania, then belonging to Sweden but now in Germany, reported watching a titanic battle between ships in the sky and a flying hat or plate that hovered over a church in the town. The story received serious and critical attention. Medical and military men interviewed the witnesses, some of whom were struck down with a mystery illness. The symptoms were puzzling, but the distress was real enough. It was a case much discussed by the chattering classes of the day. I guess that's the uh, people that love gossip. 
uh, with wide-ranging views about what it all meant. Did the men imagine strange things in the sky? Was it a visionary portent of war? Opinions were colored by political and religious bias, but the Stralsund, or the, yes, the Stralsund incident has an oddly modern ring to it. The scene, the immense plate hovering in the sky, immediately conjures up visions of flying saucers. It even seems fitting that the fishermen fell sick after it passed, as UFOs have always been regarded as dangerous to one's health. As early as June 1947, men in a boat near Maury Island, Washington, claimed that a hovering disc dropped slag-like residue into the sea and onto the deck, injuring one man and killing a dog. This may have been a hoax, but the plane crash that killed the two AAF intelligence officers sent to investigate was entirely real, thus associating UFOs with death for the first time in the modern era. Over the next several decades, cases of mystery illnesses, including nausea, hair loss, burns, and so on, became innumerable. Well-publicized examples include the 1957 Fort Itapu case in Brazil and the December 1980 Cash Landrum incident in Texas. Another familiar modern feature of the Stralson incident is that although some parts are easier to explain than others, an, an intriguing core remains that resists our efforts. A lot of this brings to mind um, radiation sickness, which is a lot of what they're talking about there. Burns on the skin um, can also be from, uh, it doesn't have to necessarily be radiation, it can be heat itself. Um, there's a lot of reports, even even chronicled in the movie uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, sunburns. Um, a lot of that has to do with UV radiation. It has to do with what they think these things possibly run on um, in certain circumstances. But there's a lot to this that that is uh, it's difficult to digest. I think that some of it is explainable, but the overall Part of it has never been explained. It's never been completely and totally figured out. You know, were these guys full of it, or was this something that really happened? Um, it's it's hard to tell. So, but I, I, I'll bring this back. Why it? There's real no really no reason why they would have made something like that part of it up because there was nothing really there to you know flying through the sky at that point anyway. So whatever they saw was. You know, obviously something unexplainable, at least to them. According to the story, a group of fishermen saw ships battling in the sky amid flocks of birds and much smoke and fire. A mysterious man wearing either black or brown clothes appeared aboard one large vessel. This is where it kind of gets interesting to me. One of the main ships in the north vanished while its opponent stayed in sight until something resembling a round plate or a man's hat, colored like a darkened moon, descended from above and headed for the main church. The fishermen could no longer watch because they were so terrified. So one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to put a link in this podcast article uh, description. You can actually go directly to this article. There are a lot of pictures in the article. Um, like, for example, Francis's 1680 engraving of the event. So if I describe it and I look at it, you can see uh, the men kind of on the shore uh, and then over the church, you can see where the cloud is with the with the disc shape. Um, and then off in the distance, you can see what they depicted as they, they look like clipper ships to me. Um, but again, I think a lot of this is that's what they could relate to the time. They didn't really have specific, you know, if, if you go back into what they do with that ancient aliens and all that other stuff. And if you go into the Mayans and you go and you look at, you know, pre-Columbian stuff, Peruvian stuff that 
talks about those time frames way back, they're denoting things in their own way. They're not looking at things as you and I would look at them today. Um, they didn't have other examples to use. And if you look at Sakari and you look at some of the other places, um, there are depictions of well, Sakari, I should say, depictions of flying machines that look like planes and look like flying discs and all these other weird things. Um, it, it, they didn't know how else to explain what they were seeing. Um, it's prevalent in um, Indian culture uh, with Shiva and Ganesh and when uh, they depict flying machines and flying bells. Uh, you, you, there's, a, there's a consistency throughout the ages, flying bells, Germany during the Nazi regime. Um, das Bell. So you, when you go and you look at some of these things, it's all, you know, how did they do, how did they know this 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago? And then again, in modern history, we have these things popping up. There's a consistency along the line throughout the timeline. So uh, again, an engraving of the event published by Francisi in 1680, figure one, shows next to the ships and birds an elliptical shape appearing through a hole in the clouds above a church spire. The event was first recorded in Leipzig in 1665, figure two, and then retold in 1671 by Johann Schefferus, 1621 to 1679, in his book, I'm going to butcher this, Memorabilium Sutique Gentis Explorium. I'm doing the best I can with that. The latter was a source for the German polymath Erasmus Franciski, a.k.a. Erasmus Finks, 1627 to 1694, through whom the story gained a wider audience, figure four. Francisci, Francisci collected a series of news reports about the event. Although he admitted they did not agree in every detail, they make interesting reading. The men said that while they were out fishing at 2 p.m. on April 8, 1665, anchored near Barhoff, a large flock of birds appeared in the heavens. After moving in unison for a time, they formed a shape like a long passage in a house. This became a warship that seemed to approach from the north, followed by countless other vessels. Then another group of large ships came from the south, heading northeast. Fire and smoke ensued as the two main ships sent cannonballs whizzing at each other, terrifying the fishermen down below. The ship from the north then retreated, came back, and headed south. Two other fleets appeared from the west and the east with smaller ships. When the smoke cleared, the fishermen could make out the broken mass of the southern fleet and a man dressed in brown. He had a hat beneath one arm and his left hand by his side, watching the crew working and running. They also saw flags in another ship emerging from the west. There were vessels everywhere. It, to me, sounds like someone with a helmet in their left arm. I don't know. I don't understand the, um, the description of masts and things of that nature. Uh, the cannonballs, I certainly, that that's all they knew about at that time, so if they're shooting something at each other. I mean, they would use whatever the term of the day was. So now that was two o'clock, right? So at about 6 p.m., the northern fleet was gone. So you're talking about a four-hour time period here, leaving the southern ships behind. After a little while, a flat, round form, like a plate or large man's hat, came straight out of the sky, shining before their eyes in colors like the darkening moon, motionless above St. Nicholas Church, where it remained until evening. So if you're thinking it's what's the April time frame, right? So you're going to have in that area, uh, you're going to have at least mm, 
two and a half to three more hours of sunlight. So you're talking about a cloud, if it's a lenticular cloud that would be standing above there uh, for over three hours, and that's that's not even possible. So it's not going to happen. Frightened beyond words, the fishermen did not wait until the spectacle ended. They returned to their huts and over the next few days suffered from trembling, pain in their hands, feet, and elsewhere in their bodies. One of those fish, one of these fishermen had been sick on his feet, wrote the Berliner Ordinary on April 10th, 1665. All of the citizens who observed this are reliable. Yesterday, Herr Colonel von der Wick and Dr. Gessman interrogated two of the six fishermen. May God change this miracle for the best. Francisi writes that scholars had wondered about these physical ailments without reaching any conclusion. He adds that he originally considered it a flight of fancy himself, but since then the oceans have been stained with so much blood that it now appears as an omen to me. Since Sheffris had said and mentioned in his memorabilia, Gentis, he said it cannot be just a rumor. Instead, he suggests it may have been a presage war between England and Holland. The flying plate. Francis's engraving shows an elliptical shape in the sky, suggesting the hat or plate at a tilt, as a horizontal disc might appear to an observer on the ground. We've heard this thing about discs tilting before. Um, I don't want to get into any other people's uh, descriptions, but uh, they have been described that by many times, and it's been done many times here and I don't know, just the past decade. Uh, in fact, there is one specific video out there that was released where one is tilted directly upwards. It goes right past the canopy of the plane and it's in clear view. Uh, again, tilted up. Hats had been a shape simile for flying objects before. In this case, the earliest account is a leaflet entitled, and I cannot say this, but it's Ein Abdigade, but I can't even go there. An illustrated description of the miraculous Straussen air wars and ship battles, published in Leipzig in 1665. Here we read, a little while later, out of the middle of the sky, appeared to them a round flat form like a plate and a big man's hat. With colors like the moon when it eclipsed, it seemed to stand directly above St. Nicholas Church, stayed there until the evening, after which the sailors, now full of fear and dread, could no longer watch nor wait for the end of this terrible and suspicious spectacle. They retreated to their huts, where in the following days they found their hands and feet and their heads and other parts burdened by a great shaking. A detail of the 19, or the, sorry, the 1665 engraving included the relevant section of text is shown in figure five, where we can see that the N identifies a circular shape in the clouds above the church spire of St. Nicholas, looking like a dark full moon. A similitude emphasized by a stylized face. This raises doubt about whether the plate and hat similes were accurate descriptions of shape or simply indicated general circularity and apparent size. We cannot be sure that the earlier engraving is the more correct rendering of the witness's intention, but it is a reasonable assumption. The 1665 engraving is not only the oldest of the sketches, but also the most detailed. The orientation of the town in the 1665 engraving appears to be more faithful to the story. Francisi's impressionistic image shows the scene as viewed from the southeast, perhaps from Daneholm Island, whereas the 19 or the 1665 engraving shows the characteristic breakwaters and masonwork of the harbor from the northeast or north. 
which is more consistent with the report that the fishermen were anchored near Barhoft when they saw the object, motionless above St. Nicholas Church. Barhoft, as spelled today, B-A-R-H-O-F-T, is a coastal village more than eight miles, 13 kilometers away from St. Nicholas Church. From anywhere near Barhoff, the entire town would have subtended an angle of just a few degrees. So a line of sight to any of the churches would point more or less south. The, ni- the 1665 engraving cannot be relied on for exact proportions. But the churches do appear in the south and the sun in the west where it ought to have been at the time reported. So there's also some pages on this uh, that are all in German and uh, I cannot read any of them. So I'm having to uh, take their word on exactly what this says. If somebody out there can speak German, you could probably translate this and, uh, you know, expound further, but I can't. Uh, We can go further. The object appeared a little while after 6 p.m., an hour before the sunset. So now if you're doing the timeline, right, so the battle took place at 2. So it's four hours that this is going on. And then this other object, which you could call the the disc, comes down at 6, right? An hour before sunset, with the sun about seven degrees from the horizon in the west. The engraving shows the object over the church a little lower than the sun and about eight times as far above the horizon as the angular height of the church. A church about 100 meters high at a distance of less than eight miles would have an angular height of about 0.5 degrees. So on the same scale, the angular height of all the sun would be just over four degrees. All things considered, this is remarkably accurate, be it a coincidence or not. So ice halos and other theories. So now we're going to get into what they thought the theories were. Um, what would be considered theoretical? Then we'll go through the specifics of how they can and cannot be. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I hesitate to take these all verbatim or all at their complete word. Um, but there's a couple of them that don't make any sense, but they throw them out there as theories anyway, um, but they kind of refute their own theories uh, or debunk their own theories a little bit further on, but we'll get into that. So what might explain a strange object in the sky with this position? Ice halos are one possibility. Tiny ice crystals in the atmosphere that refract and reflect light cause these luminous effects. This phenomenon can be striking when the sun is low, giving rise to the mock sun or sun dog. If you've never seen a sun dog, it's like a um, I've never seen one in person, but you can see them there. They're in the north a lot. And what happens is as the sun comes up, it reflects off ice crystals and it literally looks like a double sun. It's it's a there's there's pictures out there. If you want to just Google sun dog, it's pretty cool. They're they're beautiful, actually. Um, and they have these little halos kind of off to the side. And if you didn't know what a sun if you if you didn't know the crystals were hitting off the ice like that or the sun was hitting off the ice crystals like that. You would think something weird is going on, but it is, it's a pretty cool thing. So it can appear either side of the sun, shining in opalescent or spectral colors. However, sun dogs appear 22 degrees away from the sun. The sun was almost due west or 90 degrees away from the line of sight of the town. So there's another couple images here that you should take a look at. Um, Meaning an ice halo could not have been the trigger. Halos are larger angles at larger angles exist, but are invisible except as much as fainter parts of a complex halo display. We also know it wasn't the moon, which was beneath the horizon at the time, and an hour before sunset, the sky was too bright to see a star with the naked eye. And again, there's more uh, images. There's some uh, 
a couple of modern images of the town. If not a star, was it a planet? Venus was bright enough to be visible at dusk. It had a magnitude of negative 3.8 near its greatest elongation from the sun. But at 6 p.m. local time, Venus was in the west, southwest. The hat was in the south. Therefore, to see Venus align in any way with the church, the fishermen would have needed to be east of the town and Barhoft is northwest by north from Strelsen. So you're talking almost 180 degrees the other way. The line of set would have been out by about 90 degrees. It's 180 degrees as the ship sails, but it's 90 degrees if you look left. So the object appeared over the church at 6 p.m. and stayed until evening, meaning sunset. Local solar time, 1665, would be very approximate in modern terms, but our planetarium shows the sunset at 7.15 p.m. Okay, so you're talking about an hour and 15 minutes. This means the circular object hung in the sky over the church for over an hour. The stars and planets would have moved westwards with the sun at that time, so if this account is true, the hat was not an astronomical body. A problem for all theories invoking astronomical explanations that the object is described as being like a darkened or eclipsed moon, not bright, and an image is provided in the 1665 engraving to help us interpret interpret what this means. It shows a dark disk silhouetted against a bright sky with no rays, which contrasts with the conventional representation of the sun's luminosity in the same scene. We note that the object was no longer seen after sunset. This is natural if it was indeed a dark body as depicted, but not if it was an astronomical object. Perhaps it remained over the town for longer than anyone knew. So now we get into the clouds and tornadoes. Um, so what is dark, round, visible from miles away, and hangs in the sky for over an hour? As riddles go, this one is unusually tricky. An unusual cumulus cloud in the distance, or even a smoke vortex caused by a fire in the town, might be candidates for a short-lived dark blob, but not one persisting for 60 minutes. Wave clouds, commonly a cumulolenticularis, which is a lenticular cloud, can keep a compact and often discoidal shape and stay in the same position for a significant time. Well-defined lenticular clouds like this usually require a strong wind blowing over a hill or mountain, triggering, here we go here, a standing wave in a sandwich of stable air. In the Strasland region, we found no significant hills. We found a similar early account of a flying hat, in quotes, perhaps even more suggestive of a lenticular cloud. This event occurred in 1586 outside the small French commune of Matha in the Charente Maritime near Agliamé, north of Bordeaux. A horrid cloud appeared in the sky that resembled a round brown hat. It was witnessed by the French poet Theodore Agrippa de Biogion, 1552-1630, in the Marquis de Tours. The Marquis, lord of that place, took his guest to a garden shortly before sunset, and they saw a round cloud come down over the hamlet of Biot-Sumathe with a color that was horrid to see, for which one is forced to use a Latin word, subfusca, dark brown. This cloud resembled a hat with an ear in the middle, the color of the throat of an Indian rooster. This hat, with its sinister sign, came into the steeple and melted there. So this is a very curious description of a hat with an ear in the middle. It reminds us strongly of lenticular clouds. It's explicitly described as a cloud, and it melted or dissipated as a cloud might. Cloud-like size is implied, too. 
If it appeared to be 9.32 miles or 15 kilometers away, even if no larger than the moon, as seen by the human eye at 0.5 degrees, the implied diameter would be 440 feet or 135 meters. Once again, though, the low-lying topography in the area of Bouvo-Saint-Martha does not seem favorable for dramatic lenticularis. Another possible explanation of the horror cloud of the Bouvo-Saint-Martha with its attached ear is a developing funnel cloud emerging from the wall cloud of a tornadic storm cell. Bouvo-Saint-Martha is in the tornadic-prone area of France and tornadoes statistically flavor, favor the late afternoon which would fit a time shortly before sunset. The fact that the witnesses were strolling in the garden suggests a benign evening, but perhaps the Marquis and his guests braved inclement weather to observe the cloud. However, the theory does not work very well for Straslin or for Stralsen for various reasons, including its long duration. At Stralsen, the object appeared to be above a church steeple. In the earlier French case, the object also came into the steeple. Is it significant? Lenticular clouds are caused by wind blowing over an obstruction. A steeple is not a big enough obstruction to cause such a cloud. Perhaps the steeple was used as reference only, reflecting the fact that churches were the most prominent physical and cultural landmarks. Another possible explanation of the fisherman sighting is a mirage image of some distant part of the landscape, perhaps far over the normal horizon. It would only be possible if the elevation angle was much lower than suggested, within the around 0.5 degrees of the horizon, and it would be most unusual for such a mirage to, persi- mirage to persist for an hour. In any case, we are dealing with extremely approximate information of uncertain reliability. A more likely solution has been proposed for the vision of aerial ships seen during the afternoon amid the smoke battle. It would be an altogether different dark blob, a murmuration of sternus vulgaris, in other words, a flock of starlings. Up to the disc, the story is almost a textbook description of the shapes that starling flocks make as they congregate over their roosting site near sunset. Smaller foraging stalks merge into a huge and often well-defined mass that twists and stretches in amazing patterns before the birds settle for the night. It's not really a guess because flocks of birds are described explicitly and they are shown in the engravings. We attempt to discover whether the area was noted for massed roosting of starlings. The common starling is native to this part of Europe. We could find no specific reference to starlings in the immediate Stralsund area, but we can guess that woodland attractive to roosting starlings was more extensive around Stralsund in 1665 than it is today, and the spectacular flocks of a million or more birds, popularly dubbed the Black Sun, Danish short sol, still gather in March and April in nearby Jutland. Some starlings are migratory, moving between Denmark and the UK and parts of northern Scandinavia, and early April could match the time when many overwintering starlings are returning to their summer breeding grounds. Unusual weather may have pushed uncommonly large numbers west over the Baltic, which would explain why the Barhof fishermen were so amazed. Starlings cannot explain a discrete round shape persisting in one place for an hour, so there appears to be no physical connection with the hovering hat of St. Nicholas. We can't account for the latter, but the occurrence of a remarkable unknown phenomenon immediately after an unfamiliar but conventional display of starlings is an uncomfortable coincidence. We hope an attractive explanation for the flying hat of Stralsund emerges someday because we feel one probably exists. So, according to the text published in the latter half of the 17th century, 
Numerous objects were seen flying in the sky near the German city of Stralsund in April 1665. These include ships, flocks, birds, fire, and smoke, but also a dark plate or hat-shaped object that hovered over the church of St. Nicholas for an hour. Witnesses include several fishermen who afterwards complained of physical ailments, including trembling pain, mainly in the hands and feet. It was well reported and documented. Reports include the date and the time just after 6 p.m. on April 8th, and contemporary illustrations provide an approximate location in the sky. With computer simulations, we can show the cause was not the sun or the moon. We can rule out stars, planets, sun dogs. Cloud smoke or flocks of starlings may have given the impression that a circular object was drifting through the air, but the length of the sighting and its persistent shape makes it unlikely. The Strausson event is therefore a remarkable case and, true or not, ought to be considered among the first alleged flying saucer sightings in history. So this was written by Chris Albeck and Martin Schell. Um, they are in the NARCAP, National Aviation Recording Center on Anomalous Phenomena, uh, and they have been in a lot of different um, anomalous investigations. Um, so again, like I said, I'm going to give you the link to this in the actual notes of the um the podcast itself. I'm just kind of curious what everybody thinks of this. Um, you can talk to me on, uh, if you'd like to, on Twitter. Um, you can also talk to me right here in the notes of this uh, broadcast. But just thought I'd bring this one to you, uh, see what everybody thought. Um, and I, I'm just curious to hear some different ideas of what you guys might think this might have been. Could it have just been a story? I guess it could have. Um, it seems unlikely, um, only because apparently during that time frame, they were considered to be trustworthy people. Um, I don't know what that means. Um, and I don't have the names of the people that actually reported it. So it's very difficult. And you're talking about the 1600s here. So it's a little difficult to go back and uh, find this information out. But, um, you know, my my own theory is that they certainly saw something. I, I don't understand the uh, ships with masts thing. Uh, that one gets me. I don't I don't know. Um, I can't figure that one out. As I, I would imagine if these were all like orbs and, you know, <clears throat> they said some of these ships were smaller if they if they described them as orbs or uh, as long cigarette shaped things like you get a lot of that stuff today. I might have kind of been a little bit more inclined to say that this was something otherworldly. I'm, I'm not. Um, I think it's just interesting. Um, it's certainly a fun thought experiment to go back and kind of figure out what these guys were thinking, um, what it might be, um, because there's, I don't know, it, it seems like the time frame, obviously in the 1600s, you're talking about uh, anything in the sky is going to be anomalous. It isn't a bird or a cloud. Uh, so it's definitely something to think about. Anyway, curious what you think. Uh, let me know. Um, and very soon we're going to have some new updates. Uh, I'll be talking about that orb photograph here very soon. I don't have it yet. Uh, this is Sunday evening, uh, the 24th. Um, every bit of the negotiation, everything has been done. Um, all of the um, registration has been done. We've done the uh, um, background check. Uh, forensics is ongoing. Um, but we'll have more of that very soon. Um, I was kind of hoping to get a little quicker, but um, you'll see in the article that I write this, the person that has this is kind of a spiritual person. Um, and you'll, you'll, you'll hear a little bit more about his story. Um, I, I don't know. I, I 
discussing a little bit more of how much he wants his particular name out there. Um, so it's kind of like uh, getting a squirrel to come over and take a nut out of your hand. So working on it. Um, I, we Again, it's going to be uh, pretty cool once it's done. But anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, and I'll be should have another episode out this week for everybody. Until then, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll chat soon. You just listened to the Dear People of Earth UFO RM UAP podcast presented by UAPMax.com. All rights reserved. No part of this broadcast may be reproduced or distributed without express written consent of the content creator. Thank you for listening.